Hello and welcome back to the Gucci podcast. Today we meet Josh Blaberg to talk about his film Distant Planet, the six chapters of Simona. Produced with Freeze to premiere at the Freeze Art Fair in London. Josh's documentary is part of Second Summer of Love, a four-part series which explores Acid House's enduring impact on international contemporary culture. Free Studios senior editor Matthew McLean talks to Josh to discover more about the untold story of Italo Disco, including real characters of the scene such as fans and club owners and traces Italo's hidden legacies in today's sounds. Hello, I'm Matthew McLean, senior editor at Free Studios, and I'm here today on Gucci Podcast to speak with filmmaker and visual artist Josh Blayberg. He's just finished a film, part of the second Summer of Love series, which Freeze is collaborating on with Gucci, that tells the story of house music around the world. Josh is looking at Italo Disco, which isn't a genre as well-known to house music lovers. In Distant Planet, the six chapters of Simona, Josh tells us how this nation-specific dance genre came together, introducing us to some of the characters who were big in the scene. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Gucci Podcast. Great to be here with you. Um, I just offered a slightly clumsy definition of a... Italo Disco. So maybe as somebody who's been immersed in it for uh, some time now, you could offer a brief intro to the uninitiated of, of how you define this genre, this movement. Well, I think actually it's quite hard to define Italo Disco without sounding a little bit clumsy because the genre itself is such a patchwork of different sounds different ideas, largely because the term Italo Disco was coined after the fact, really. The people who were making the music weren't, didn't consider themselves to be part of a scene, let's say. It was hyper-localised, much of it coming out of Milan. But from what I can tell from the people that I've met and spoken to, if you were listening to music in Naples, you would have been listening to slightly different sounds to the kind of music you would have been listening to in Milan or Rome. Um, and I think for that reason, the genre has always been quite elastic in its definition. To me, at least, I decided to say it's Italian dance music uh, from the 80s, with a largely reliant on synthesizers um, and characterised probably by a strange combination of happy and sad emotions, often often at once. The term itself was actually coined, I think, by a, by a German record label owner. So and I think this is one of the things which interested me about it so much. It's a riddle. It's a patchwork. It's confusing and it's contradictory. So from the first step into this world, you've kind of taken two steps back, um, which is also what makes it so fun. One quote, actually, that might be in interesting to think about is... Um, from a producer called Marcello Catalano, who, who I met and interviewed, and his voice is woven through the film. He recorded under lots of different pseudonyms, and we, I'm sure we'll come on to discuss the kind of uh, the fact that Italo Disco is represented by invented n English sounding names. Uh, he record, recorded one incredible track under the name of Daryl Scott. <laughs> and he said to me, Think about it this way, Josh. Ita it, Italo Disco is like a painter who is tasked with copying a painting, but they are then given a completely different colour palette. And I think that is a very Italo way of thinking about, about the genre, actually. Yeah. And you've spoken about how 
there's a sense of there's a kind of hierarchy of of in there's a sort of house hierarchy um and in which Italo disco might have been given less credit or sort of critical respect than than the genres it was in a way responding to or, or mimicking or when we look back now at musical history um if we see it in relation to could you talk a bit about in relation to um um yeah, that's to what a, you're saying about about the influence and then the attempt to to replicate on a different scale. Um, why is it that Italo disco might have might have enjoyed less acclaim um, than its counterparts? Mm. I think um, that's probably one of the things which first leapt out of me when I started listening or discovered this music, realizing I hadn't quite appreciated how much I'd absorbed these hierarchies, cultural hierarchies obviously specifically in this case in music, but it's certainly made me think about other uh, other mediums. And I think from a British point of view and an American point of view as well, we tend to think that we... We're snobs, basically. We like to think we invented it. Post-war popular music, we completely navigate around American pop cultural iconography and British as well. And I think there's always this sort of if it's acknowledged at all, there might be a slight unspoken, slightly dismissive um, idea of European music. I think the fact that it sounds so similar to the music that we know and we grow up with in Britain and America is one of the reasons that it's it kind of creates this uncanny sensation, maybe. It's sort of, on first listen, you think, oh, this is... What is this? Do I know this track? Is this an Alphaville track? Is who, who's this by? And then on, you know, you start to pay attention to the lyrics, and maybe they don't quite add up in the way that ordinarily lyrics might. And the sounds sound that little bit different. The melody is heightened, and I think it's really because of that uncanny feeling which it gives the listener, or it certainly certainly gives me, that it made me think about uh, these hierarchies which run throughout. Uh, not just not just rave and uh, house music, but through across uh, pop music culture. With Italo, it was a record would be produced. Let's say Marcello would produce a record. The records would be printed, and then instead of going straight into record stores, they would go to warehouses where DJs would collect them, listen to them, pick the ones they liked, take them to the clubs, and then in a very democratic way. If the, cl- if the crowd responded to the music positively, then maybe two months later, Marcello would get a call and, oh, that track you made under the name Daryl Scott, people are loving it. Oh, God, uh, okay, quick, print 10,000 more of those. So it was a really ad hoc system without any top-down uh, navigation, I suppose. Because of that, I, I think it never had the professionalism around it to enable it to break into American or British markets to be able to stand up there with the kind of music that maybe they were thinking about at the time. But I actually think it was because of the way that it was produced in that regard that there was nowhere to hide. You, you know, there was no money to to uh, try and advertise this music. If a track was popular, it really was because somebody res- the audiences responded to it in a very organic and natural way. And I think that's also why all these years later, the music's still popular, because there was no 
There was no faking, although actually faking, I'm sure, is another word we might come on to as to what is real and what is not real in this uh, kind of mad fever dream that Italo Disco is. Well, should we go from there? Um, in your film, you've taken... Um, the approach is not in any sense a strict documentary but involves element of, of fiction and narrative and indeed science fiction, which is a response in part to, to these qualities in the music and in the genre. To put that question simply, why did you choose that approach for Italo Disco? To try and take a sort of traditional documentary approach to Italo Disco, I think, would have been a real misstep because Italo itself, as we, would, we just started to talk about, is um, a combination of fictions and fantasies and misunderstandings. I wanted the film to rep represent that, really. Italo wears its artifice on its sleeve, I think, and I think that artifice in Italo is very poignant, and I hope that the structure of the film represents that. Yeah, one of the tracks which um, features prominently in the film is uh, When I Let You Down by M&G from 1986, which even in its title sort of embraces this kind of, uh, that sense of melancholy or, or disappointment, even though the track itself is, well, I don't know, maybe you can describe that track, but also um, I think maybe you, you referred earlier to that, that mix of happy and sad. Mm. If you could expand on that, um, that idea and, and, and how you've worked that through in the film. Yeah, so we were talking at the start actually about what, what Italo Disco is and how it might be defined and I think that's probably, for me at least, one of the uh, core elements of the sound. This duality between happy and sad, even at, even at the same time, or perhaps over repeated listens, a track that might sound at, on first listen so saccharine, so disposable, so cheesy, but then when you return to it, you think, oh, actually, there's so much more going on here. One of the producers of the music summed it up beautifully. A guy called Fabrizio, he recorded under the name Brian Ice, which itself is just great. I just, you know, he, I said to him, how did, you, how did you come up with this name, Brian Ice? And he said, well, actually, at first I just wanted to call myself Ice. And uh, whoever it was who he was making the music with said, okay, well, you, you've got to have her you've got to have a first name, you can't just be called Ice. He said, well, you know, why, why not? Because, you know, everyone has two names, please choose a name. He said, okay, Fabrizio, ended up with Brian, which is probably the least cool sounding name you could come up with. Although there are lots of Allens in Italo Disco as well. I said, Fabrizio, although I think I should probably call him Brian, why, why is there this happy, sad sound in the music? And he said, it's because we were so happy to be making it, but we kind of knew that we were going to get caught out, that it wasn't necessarily real, that it couldn't last forever. And I think you can hear that in lots and lots of the music. And also, I think, for me anyway, some people are just wired like this. It's almost like just because something sounds happy instantly, a rush of poignancy uh, rolls in. One of the themes in the film is certainly loss. Um... I think the music is probably defined by loss in some ways. And um, it's that idea that even in our happiest moments 
or in our greatest fantasies maybe, we know that we're going to have to come back down to, to reality eventually. And um, I think that's probably what makes the music so special. Alberto, who's one of the three lead characters in the film, was in a band called Stilu, who I think we might play one of his tracks later on. Um, I, I flipped the record cover over, and um, there are three guys in that band. They'd all given themselves nicknames. Alberto called himself Kid, and one of the other guys in the band was called Rhino. And I said, you know, what, you know Alberto, what, what was this all about? Why, why did you come up with these names? Why, why were you calling yourself Kid? He said, well, it's obvious, Josh. Firstly, I was the youngest in the band, so obviously I was going to call myself Kid. But all, he then confessed it's because he wanted a solo career afterwards. They had this idea that Stilu, which they kind of conceived as a cousin of Duran Duran, was going to you know, dominate the charts across the world. And then Kid would step outside of Stilu and take his rightful place as, uh, in pop history. I think every time that you find something in Italo that sounds light, and disposable and funny, there's always a melancholy and something richer underneath it. So that Stilu track uh, opens with these very futuristic sounding clanging synths um, that really evokes sci-fi. And I wanted to ask about your use of sci-fi in the film. Um, it almost seems it's kind of a corrective or it balances out that exploration of themes of loss and sadness and transience, there's also an aspect in which you try to fight against them um, and in a way reclaim or rehabilitate or offer a, a counter-history in which um, in which that those inevitabilities are sort of reversed, which is which is and that's dealt with in the sci-fi element. So maybe you could you could just explain that 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 aspect of the film. The future or a concern with the future is certainly one of the key ideas, I suppose, of a disco. Maybe in the 1980s, just generally as well, people were obsessed with the future. The aesthetic was very uh, robots, lasers. The synthesizer itself, of course, is a futuristic sound. In Italo, you can, you can hear it, the impossibility in the music. I just I find it very moving that the future people were hoping for and expecting obviously hasn't arrived, so there's another loss there. And again, I maybe just referring back to something that somebody said in the film, on a more of an emotional level, I was talking to, let's call him Daryl Scott again, about, uh, about this idea of the future. He said, yeah, sure, of course, it was uh, lasers and robots in outer space but emotionally when you're 20 years old you you just have great hopes for the future for them that manifested in that kind of sci-fi realm but I think on an emotional level there's a real optimism there which looking back 30 years later between what they were hoping to achieve or at least the image of what they were hoping to achieve and how it was presented 
and just what happens in life generally is extremely poignant and emotional. Um, but as for how I positioned the film in a sort of sci-fi context, I think that's really an attempt to try to raise some of those hierarchies we were talking about and to try and overcome that sense of loss for one for one moment at least to perhaps 30 years later to try and write a historical wrong or a cultural wrong that um, this incredible scene populated in a large way perhaps by what we might term outsiders to to allow them to touch what it was they wanted to touch or become 30 years later. Maybe for people who haven't seen the film yet, you could just describe that that narrative in a or mm. that aspect in a in a um, in an encapsulated form. Well, as I said, Italo is all about artifice. Not all about artifice, but it's certainly an important theme. And the film is divided up into these chapters, which again present on screen the uh, the names and the places of the scenes akin to a screenplay. I'm from a screenwriting background and I've always been interested in how screenplays themselves as tools but also as uh, kind of cultural artefacts in and of themselves try to represent reality. And again, there's obviously inherently a loss between what a screenplay is trying to do and what it ends up doing as it makes its way to the screen. And in these chapters, in this film, I wanted to take our three Italo stars and place them into this sort of essentialized world, maybe. I think that's one thing that Italo Disco does. It takes American and British sounds and essentializes them, boils them down into what Italians might have thought of as their essence. And I think this story hopefully reflects that. We, um, in a nutshell... Simona Zanini, who's the star of the show, receives a letter from a fictionalised record producer. Although, again, in a disco, you're never really sure who's fictionalised and who's real, inviting him, inviting her, sorry, to his funeral. And as she travels to his funeral with some other Italo disco stars, they reconnect, or perhaps they just connect with what it was they were trying to uh, reach 30 years ago. Glamour, fantasy, and at the close of the film, for one moment at least, they're sort of absorbed into a sci-fi fantasy. Maybe it's a little vision into some parallel universe where Italo Disco is or was the dominant culture, where... Our three Italo stars were filling multiplexes all around the world. And then at the very, very closing moments of the film, they, um, I suppose they turn into demigods, really. I thought, how can I celebrate these incredible people and their incredible music? And I thought, well, I can't, 
I can't really do much more than that other than turning them into into gods. And yeah. And um, in terms of visually imagining those gods, what were your references? Mm. Well, what, Italo Disco, obviously the music is the most critical thing, but um, the aesthetic itself of the record sleeves, of the music videos, of the performances, it's unique. It's, um, on the one hand, it's reaching so far towards grandiosity, the future, luxury, fantasy, but then perhaps the record sleeves themselves might have just been drawn by the by the producer. And I guess it's again in that gap between intention and result that uh, there's a there's a poignancy, but also a real truth. So the record sleeves and the aesthetic of Italo was uh, was really what I was trying to represent and then also more generally uh, 80s sci-fi that kind of pre-digital analogue warmth that um, is extremely evocative and soft and forgiving as well back to one of your comments about the the Italo's sort of essentializing, taking a sound and, and, and boiling it down to its elements, which you mentioned in relation to, um, or, or we could talk, think about in relation to uh, Pink Footbath by Louis, which has this sort of um, kind of almost like a funk sound running through it. Um, but I wanted almost in a way to flip that idea of influence around and ask as well as absorbing and, and boiling down these influences, did Italo go on to influence anything else, or what is its legacy? Even at the time, there was there was a cultural exchange that maybe is unknown or underrepresented in the in kind of the popular imagination, I suppose. In Chicago and Detroit, people were listening to Italo. In New York as well. And you can hear those sounds in uh, in the music which we love. And then, of course, actually, British and American bands were touring Italy, drinking up those sounds, Patch Up Boys, New Order. But as for the, the legacy, it's hard to say. I think with Italo Disco, drawing any firm conclusions, uh, it's probably a mistake. I think the legacy is probably maybe just starting to make itself known largely due to the internet. I think that's probably how most people would discover it now, and it's given it, a, if not a second life, maybe a third life, actually. There was, it's probably had a couple of revivals. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one to, to think what, it, what its legacy is. I spoke about that a lot with the uh, producers and performers. And there's no firm conclusion, really. Some of them are keen to say, oh, we invented house music, or this track... 100%, that's the start of techno. I think that's probably overstretching. I think it's very hard to say what, what, its, what its legacy is in that kind of firm, firm 
uh, way of trying to draw musical parallels between different scenes. I think uh, maybe that's what's so incredible about it, that it is unique and it stands alone. Were any of the, um, the, the artists and producers you reached out to, were they surprised by your interest for that reason? Or were most of them like, of course you want to, of course you want to speak to me. I'm a legend. It's a bit of both. I think one of the things about Italo actually is, especially discovering it from the outside and not being Italian. In this strange mishmash of different genres, which is just yoked together under the umbrella term of Italo disco, also sort of YouTube algorithm, which just will bring a track that sold maybe four million copies next to a track that sold maybe you know, four copies. Sometimes it was hard to know, well, how does this person see themselves? Were they, were they, did they consider themselves to be a pop star who just happened to be Italian? Or did they consider themselves to be an Italo disco producer, in inverted commas? And then again, in the gap between now and when the music was produced, so much of that's probably been forgotten and people try to reinvent themselves. And then with the Italo disco revival of the past 10 years, there are people who are starting to carve out, let's say, a living from the music this time round, which they didn't do the first time round, which I think is quite fascinating. But um, to actually answer the question, I think it was mainly complete confusion. <laughs> who is this strange... Uh, British guy who knows every track that I've made and I've since forgotten um, asking me would I mind coming to Mount Etna to be turned into a god um, yeah it was uh, there was some of that Josh it's been fascinating to talk to you um, and to find out so much about uh, this genre and your journey into it um, thank you so much thank you very much Thank you for listening to this new episode of the Gucci Podcast. Discover more about the documentary Distant Planet, The Six Chapters of Simona on Gucci.com or Freeze.com.